0: Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. In recent years, you've probably heard about the so-called War on Christmas. It's the belief that there is a concerted effort by certain secular groups to somehow ban Christmas. Now, I'm not about to wade into that particular political minefield. But historically speaking, you might be surprised to learn that there actually once was a powerful group who tried to ban Christmas, and they were… Christians? By the end of the year 1645, England was being torn apart by a bloody civil war between the Royalists and the Parliamentarians. The Parliamentarians wanted more say in how the government should be run. But King Charles I and the people who remained loyal to him wouldn't budge. At first, things didn't go well for the Parliamentarians. Before the Civil War, England had no permanent standing army, but each county had its own militia that could be called upon during times of conflict, but these were typically local farmers and shopkeepers, not trained soldiers. In 1644, the Parliamentarian forces suffered one of their biggest defeats at the Battle of Lostwithal in Cornwall. Oliver Cromwell demanded that Parliament step up and do something to improve their military strength. By April 1645, Parliament passed ordinances which helped reorganize the troops into a real fighting force called the New Model Army. Pretty soon, these better equipped and better trained soldiers began to win decisive victories against the King's forces. This New Model Army, which was led by Oliver Cromwell and Sir Thomas Fairfax, managed to rout Charles I's forces at the Battle of Naseby. Although that battle dealt a major blow to the King's army, the Royalists still refused to surrender. By the end of the year, as snow blanketed the countryside and both armies became desperate for food and clothing, it's pretty understandable how few people were looking forward to having a Merry Christmas that year. At the same time, there were still plenty of people that loved celebrating Christmas. Although there remained a small but vocal minority that felt just the opposite. Now let's get one thing straight. Although there is a popular belief that Oliver Cromwell banned Christmas during the mid-17th century, The truth is, most of the political action occurred in Parliament while Cromwell was otherwise occupied by the war. Throughout the medieval era, Christmas Day was celebrated by special church services and elaborate feasts, accompanied by copious amounts of drinking. In fact, back then, they liked to keep the party going throughout the 12 days of Christmas, during which time more church services were held, lots of games were played, and there was plenty more eating and drinking to be had. One powerful group who weren't quite so amused by all this frivolity were the Puritans. These hardcore Christian Protestants saw all this Christmas merrymaking as unwelcome remnants of Catholic traditions, as well as many of the pre-Christian pagan traditions that had become intertwined with the holiday. Most Puritans believed that Christmas should be devoted solely to sober religious contemplation and nothing else. After King Charles I was defeated in the Civil War, a number of Puritans rose to power in Parliament, who in June 1647 passed an ordinance that abolished Christmas as a day of feast and holiday. Although it's likely Oliver Cromwell supported this action, there doesn't seem to be much evidence that he played any serious role in leading the campaign to ban Christmas. After that, shops and markets were ordered to stay open on December 25th. In the city of London, soldiers were sent out on patrol with orders to seize any food being prepared for Christmas celebrations and to break up any other merrymaking they saw. As you can imagine, this ordinance was wildly unpopular throughout England, causing several pro-Christmas riots to break out. But nevertheless, the Puritans remained a small but very vocal minority. In fact, their influence could be felt all the way across the pond. In 1659, the Puritan government of the Massachusetts Bay Colony passed their own ordinance banning Christmas. This ban on Christmas in the United States would actually remain on the books all the way up through the 18th and 19th centuries. But just like it did in England, most non-Puritans hated the idea and in 1870 Christmas was finally declared a national holiday in the U.S. For many years leading all the way up to the 19th century, a lot of Christmas traditions fell out of favor with the wave of anti-Christmas sentiment that had swept through Europe and America. During the Enlightenment and Industrial Revolution, many Christmas traditions began to be seen as old-fashioned. There was also a continued push by a lot of businesses to remain open on Christmas. All of which abruptly changed in 1843 with the publication of Charles Dickens’s "A Christmas Carol." Dickens’s story became so wildly popular it almost single-handedly helped reinvigorate the Christmas spirit that was being lost. Ebenezer Scrooge became symbolic of all these negative feelings towards Christmas. All of a sudden there was a new public pushback against businesses that wanted to remain open on the holiday. There was also a new focus on peace and forgiveness, of family bonds, and goodwill toward your fellow men. The ghost of Christmas present who appears in the story as a jolly bearded figure with a fur collar almost certainly helped inspire Thomas Nast during his creation of the modern interpretation of Santa Claus. Since A Christmas Carol's original publication, it has gone on to become one of the most popular and retold Christmas stories this side of the Bible. You can find versions of Dickens's tale in hundreds of movies, cartoons, and TV shows and every year the list keeps growing. One other Christmas tradition a Christmas carol helped renew interest in was the telling of ghost stories around a crackling fire on Christmas. The Yule Log is one of the pre-Christian traditions that originates from pagan celebrations of the winter solstice. During the solstice, it became tradition for people to sit around fires built with the Yule Log and celebrate the rebirth of the sun. One way they passed the time was to tell ghost stories to one another. So in keeping with this long-standing Christmas tradition, I'd like to tell you a ghost story as well. In fact, it's one of the most famous ghost stories in America. Nandor Fodor, one of the most noted paranormal researchers of the 20th century, once referred to this particular legend as America's greatest ghost story. So get yourself a cup of warm cocoa, sit back by a crackling fire, and listen to the story of the Bell Witch. I'm Nate Hale, And this Christmas, I just want to remind all of you how grateful I am to have all of you listeners out there. And this is The Conspirators. After the first British settlers came to North America, strict orders were put in place for most people to remain living near the Atlantic coast. This was actually for a pretty good reason too the early colonies were dependent on supplies from england which came to the new world by boat so the colonists needed easy access to the atlantic ocean for basic survival but as time went on many colonists began to see the mountains to the west and began to wonder what lay in that direction of course this didn't go over particularly well with the hundreds of thousands of native americans who had already been living on this land for generations. In 1763, the British issued an official proclamation banning anyone from moving westward. But after the Revolutionary War, that proclamation abruptly ended, and now thousands of Americans were free to roam and seek their fortune and glory to the West. One such place where settlers poured into was the newly formed state of Tennessee. Back in 1804, John Bell, along with his wife Lucy Williams Bell, joined a group of approximately 10 other families and moved from Edgecombe County, North Carolina, to Red River, Tennessee. They brought with them five of their children. Their oldest daughter was recently married and remained in North Carolina. As was fairly common back then, the family also traveled with a number of slaves. Although the exact number varies from telling to telling, it's most likely around nine people the family owned. The Bell family eventually purchased 320 acres of farmland near the Red River. They built a house and over the next 13 years, they built up their farm and began growing their family even further. Within the first few years, the Bells welcomed another daughter and two more sons to their already large family. Most retellings of the Bell family's troubles all start with one unusual incident, which is said to have sparked the supernatural events that followed. One day in 1817, John Bell was out in his cornfield when he spotted a strange animal about a dozen yards away. This creature had the body of a dog, but the head was very clearly that of a rabbit. John had his rifle with him and he did what came naturally to him. He raised the gun and fired at the creature. His shot missed and he fired again two more times. Both those shots missed their target as well. But they did manage to scare the strange creature off. When John Bell finally returned home that evening for dinner, he had almost managed to put the encounter out of his mind. He was tired from a day of working the farm. He also had a practical mind and didn't have time to let his mind linger on what he was now beginning to suspect had simply been a figment of his imagination. But that evening, just as John Bell was settling in for the night, the house's walls began to shake with what sounded like someone banging on the exterior of the house. The family rushed outside to see who was making all the racket, but there was no one there. A few days later, John's son Drew was outside when he spotted what he described as an unknown bird of extraordinary size perched on a fence that flew off the moment he moved closer. Shortly after that incident, John's 11-year-old daughter Elizabeth, who went by Betsy, claimed to have seen a dead girl in a green dress swinging from a tree on the property. This vision was so terrifying it sent her running and screaming back home, but when she dared glance back toward the tree, the girl was gone. Yet another strange encounter was reported by one of the family's enslaved people. He was a man named Dean, and a few years earlier he had fallen in love with and gotten married to another enslaved woman who lived on a nearby farm. So each night after Dean finished his work, he would walk over to the neighboring farm to see his wife. By the time he returned to the Bell Farm, it was late and dark, and he was alone. Well, not exactly alone. Because Dean claimed that he began to be followed home by a large black dog that kept stepping out of the darkness to cross his path. You can find many reports of large black dogs being reported throughout supernatural folklore. And in general, they are considered bad omens of things to come. This black dog didn't seem to be any different, because from that point on, things grew even more terrifying for the Bells. That's because whatever supernatural entity appeared to have taken residence on their farm, came to haunt them inside their house. It started with rapping noises. All the family members at one time or another began to hear the sounds of someone knocking on the walls in distant parts of the house. But then over time, the noises began to change. Some of the children began to describe hearing the sounds of what they said sounded like some animals gnawing on their bedposts at night. Other times they said they could hear rattling chains in the dark. Sometimes they told their parents that invisible hands would pull their blankets off them in the middle of the night. Late one night, Betsy came rushing into her parents' bedroom crying and screaming hysterically. They calmed her down and lit a lantern, only to find her body was covered in red welts and bruises, as if someone had beaten her. That night was just the first of many supernatural events that seemed centered around Betsy. There were more attacks in the night, as well as more noises that seemed to follow her everywhere. And I mean, everywhere. One night, Betsy tried spending the night at a friend's home. She had hoped putting some distance between her and the family home would get her away from whatever ghostly entity was tormenting her. But the spirit, or whatever it was, attacked her there as well. While all this was going on, John Bell began to experience his own physical troubles. He said he had trouble eating. Sometimes he felt as if he couldn't control his own tongue. When he tried to swallow food, sometimes it just wouldn't go down. It just lingered in his mouth and wouldn't swallow. Despite all the strange things going on, John's reaction was to all but ignore it. He tried to do this for over a year. His strange inability to swallow, the beatings of his children, the strange noises. All these things he just sort of expected they would stop on their own. It wasn't until John's own reputation suffered that he began to change his tune. By the time the Bells were living in Tennessee, although the witch trials of the past had mostly faded to history, even by the 19th century there were plenty of small communities like the one the Bells lived in, where the old superstitions lived on. In fact, there once was a man named James Smith who lived in the same town as the Bells who was murdered after being accused of being a witch. As word began to leak out about all the strange goings on inside the Bell home, John Bell finally gave in and began seeking outside help. This was very likely as a way to avoid anyone thinking he was a witch too. It seems pretty self-serving when you think about it considering John Bell was perfectly okay with letting some invisible entity attack his own children. But when his own reputation was on the line, well, something had to be done. John turned to a family friend, a local minister named James Johnston, for help. Johnston and his wife agreed to spend the night in the farmhouse to get a better idea of what was going on. That night after dinner, Johnston led the family through a series of Bible readings. Then Johnston offered a blessing for the home and the family. After that, everyone retired to their rooms for the night and went to sleep. Well, died to sleep at least. Because the Johnstons were woken in the middle of the night by the loud banging noises that routinely plagued the bells. They were then startled when something yanked the blankets off the bed. Johnston immediately jumped out of bed and shouted into the dark, demanding in the name of the Lord who this creature was and what it wanted. But the minister didn't receive a response not right then at least it wouldn't be long though before the spirit inhabiting the bell home did something it had never done before it spoke to them the following morning as the bells and the johnstons gathered for breakfast the minister told john and the others about this terrifying encounter in the night this only added to the family's terror because if a man of god couldn't ward off this evil then what else could they do that was when something entirely startling happened the spirit "'began to speak to them all. "'At first, I repeated back some of the Bible passages "'the minister had spouted the night before. "'But over time, the invisible entity had a lot more to say. "'Pretty soon, gossip began to spread far and wide "'about the haunting of the bell farm. Their oldest daughter, who was living in North Carolina, "'wrote them a letter saying she had heard rumors "'about their haunting. "'A few weeks later, the Bells invited two local ministers "'for lunch one Sunday afternoon.' The two men came from churches that were miles apart. That day, they had both delivered sermons around the same time as one another. Yet the entity appeared to have heard both of them, as it repeated back parts of both their sermons to them. Up till this point, you might have been wondering if one of the children had been playing some pranks in the family that had gotten way out of hand. In the case of the story of the Fox sisters from New York who helped spark the spiritualist movement, that's precisely what is believed to have happened. Some of the daughters got bored and began rapping on walls and throwing their voices to make it seem like they were in communication with spirits. In the case of the bells, this also seems like the most logical scenario as well. And yet it's difficult to explain how the children could have overheard and repeated back two different sermons performed in two separate churches. Of course, lots of other people had their own opinions on what was causing the haunting. Some people thought they were being haunted by the spirit of a local Native American, someone who was angry about these white settlers occupying their land. On one occasion, the voice told them, I am a spirit. I was once very happy, but had been disturbed. Some people believe it may have been tied to the disturbance of a nearby burial mound on the property. At one point, the entity sent Drew Bell and his friend Pennant Porter on an unproductive search for buried Indian treasure. In his book, An Authenticated History of the Bell Witch, author Martin Ingram wrote that the entity became known as Kate, after the poltergeist identified itself at one point as Old Kate Batts' Witch and after that continued to answer to Kate. This is also why the entity came to be known as the Bell Witch. John Johnston, the son of the minister who first came to the Bell House, devised a test for Kate by asking it questions that no one inside the family should know. Johnston asked Kate what his Dutch step-grandmother in North Carolina would say to the slaves if she thought they did something wrong. The witch correctly replied in his grandmother's accent, Tut tut, what has happened now? On another occasion, an English skeptic visited the Bell house to investigate, only to leave abruptly when Kate began to speak to him in a perfect imitation of his parents' voices. He later wrote to the Bell family that he learned that the spirit had visited his parents back in England at the same time. As events escalated, the family began having open discussions about abandoning the farm and moving away. Problem was, no one was sure if even that would be enough. Remember, Betsy tried spending the night at a friend's house only the spirit followed her there. The funny thing is the spirit wasn't always malevolent towards the family, at least not all of them. Kate appeared to show special kindness towards Lucy, John Bell's wife. She referred to her as the most perfect woman to walk the earth. Kate would sometimes sing hymns to her and give her gifts of fresh fruit. During the spring of 1820, Lucy became sick with a terrible lung infection that made it difficult to breathe. Kate offered up a folk remedy for her made from grapes and hazelnuts, and it worked. Not long after taking the medicine, Lucy began to recover. The one person who began to get the worst treatment was John Bell. Although a lot of the hauntings had originally centered around Betsy, the Bell's youngest daughter, it reserved a special anger towards John. Sometimes Kate would shout angry threats and insults at him. It told him his life was worthless and that he should just end it all. The witch continued amping up John's inability to eat. Sometimes it rendered him unable to speak as well. This all took a major toll on John Bell's health. Throughout the year 1820, John Bell became seriously ill. He spent a lot of time bedridden. When he could get out of bed, he was weak and even the most mundane tasks were exhausting to him. One day John managed to drag himself out of bed and he went outside where his son Richard was tending the pigs. That was when Kate attacked him by yanking the shoes off his feet and sending them flying through the air. When John got to his feet and tried stumbling his way back to the house, Kate slapped him so hard across the face it knocked him back down. This was followed by the entity's chilling laughter echoing through the air. By December 1820, John's health had declined rapidly. At this point, he was completely bedridden, weak, and frail, a mere shadow of the man he had once been when he first settled this farm. On December 19th, John fell into a coma. No one was able to wake him up, and yet no one could say exactly what was wrong with him either. That was when John's wife Lucy discovered a strange glass vial among her household medicines containing a dark liquid she didn't recognize. There wasn't much left in the vial, but it alarmed her nonetheless. She called out to Kate demanding to know what was in the bottle. At first, Kate didn't answer, but then it admitted that it had given John the contents of the vial the night before. Lucy was horrified. She decided to test what little remained of the dark liquid by feeding the last few drops to one of her cats, which immediately fell over dead. Within a few hours, the poison took its toll on John as well. Pretty soon his breathing stopped and he was gone. As the family all gathered to mourn John, Kate could be here singing happy songs. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. According to legend, shortly after John's death, Kate told the family it was ready to leave. But it would return to visit them again seven years later. In 1828, true to its word, the witch returned to visit Lucy and her sons, Richard and Joel. Although they chose not to engage with it, and eventually the witch appears to have moved on. In the years that followed, there's been a lot of speculation about what we should or shouldn't believe about the story of the Bell Witch. For starters, you have to keep in mind that pretty much all sources for the legend are drawn from the earliest book written about the incident titled The Authenticated History of the Bell Witch. This was written in 1894 by Martin Van Buren Ingram, owner of a local newspaper. This book was published 75 years after the events supposedly occurred on the Bell farm. Ingram claimed to have gotten his own source material from the handwritten diary of Richard Bell, one of John Bell's sons. The problem with that is Richard was born in 1811, making him around six or seven years old at the time the hauntings occurred. Ingram said that Richard wrote most of his recollections down in the 1840s, more than 30 years later. Ingram went on to say that Richard passed the diary on to his son Alan, who later gave it to Ingram with instructions to keep the contents private until after the deaths of the immediate family. All this isn't to necessarily say that Ingram was making up the story, but since his book was published many years after all the potential witnesses were already dead, it makes it impossible to corroborate many of the claims he made inside the book. Some historians have found another printed reference to the Bell Witch Haunting that actually predates the publication of Ingram's book. It was mentioned briefly in the 1886 first edition of Goodspeed's History of Tennessee in a chapter on Robertson County. The short description talks about how people would travel for hundreds of miles to witness the Bell Witch for themselves. People would sometimes have conversations with the Invisible Spirit. It would perform pranks such as yanking the quilts off beds, slapping and pinching children, then laughing about it afterwards. One other story that gets told about the Bell Witch is that Word of the haunting spread so far and wide that in 1819 it reached a particular heroic major in the U.S. Army from the Battle of New Orleans. This man was none other than Andrew Jackson, the future seventh president of the United States. According to this story, Jackson and his men were curious but skeptical about the hauntings. So one night they stayed at the Bell Homestead to investigate. During the night, one of Jackson's men was physically assaulted by invisible hands. In the morning, Jackson gave up and fled the farm, stating, I'd rather fight the entire British army than to deal with the Bell Witch. The problem with this story is there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence to corroborate it either. Jackson's whereabouts were pretty well documented between 1814 and 1820, and there is no known record showing him visiting the Bell Farm during that time. And in all his own writings or the biographies written about him, there is no mention of him ever encountering the Bell Witch. The 1824 presidential election was a bitter contest between the two parties, and you'd think Jackson's opponents would have loved to have dragged his name through the mud if word had gotten out that the military hero was afraid of ghosts. And yet, historical records do indicate that there really was a bell witch Of sorts. Remember that the name Kate was told to the family by the spirit itself. The reason why we call the ghost a witch is because the entity once referred to itself as a witch sent by old Kate Batts. The thing is there really was a kate Batts. only she probably wasn't a witch and she actually outlived john bell records indicate she was still alive at least until the 1830s making it pretty difficult for her to be a ghost back when the bell family originally traveled from north carolina to tennessee in 1804 one of the other families in the caravan was the bats family and they would come to despise the bells in 1816 frederick Batts, the family patriarch suffered a serious injury while working on his farm that left him physically impaired and unable to work for the rest of his life. This put the family in desperate financial trouble and forced Frederick to sell off parts of his land in order to make ends meet. He sold some of his property to John Bell for much less than it was worth. Frederick's wife Kate was furious and she insisted that John Bell had swindled them. She swore that she would make the family pay for the supposed misdeed. Things grew even more tense between the families after John Bell purchased a young slave girl from Frederick's brother Benjamin. At the time, John thought the girl was too young to take with him at the time of purchase, so he left the girl in the care of her mother for a couple more years. But when he finally returned to collect the girl, Benjamin decided the girl was too valuable and attempted to renege on the deal. The two men argued and eventually Benjamin agreed to repurchase the girl at a higher price than Bell originally paid. At the time, John Bell thought the business was concluded and from then on decided to have no more dealings with the Batts family. But unbeknownst to John, shortly after the deal was over, Benjamin filed a lawsuit against him for extortion. Bell was completely unaware that he was being sued, so he failed to attend the hearing. But without Bell appearing in court to defend himself, the judge had no choice but to side with Benjamin. News of this judgment eventually made its way to Red River, and from there was heard by members of the local church. This led to the church excommunicating John Bell. With Frederick no longer able to take care of the family, Kate Batts stepped up and became the leader of the household. She was widely disliked by the community for her loud and brash attitude. Many members of the church began to openly speculate that this spiteful-tongued woman was a witch. They even began to suspect that her husband's accident was actually punishment from God for her wicked ways. Although no one ever dared directly accuse Kate Batts of being a witch to her face, the rumor persisted, and most townsfolk chose to avoid her. When all the strange occurrences like the loud rapping on the walls of their house began, John Bell immediately suspected that the Bats family was behind it. It is certainly possible that many of the alleged ghostly events were actually just a series of playful pranks performed by the bored Bell children. Another theory goes that many of the supposed incidents were all part of a plot to murder John Bell, there are some versions of the events you'll find that say that Lucy Bell, John's wife, was the younger sister of John Williams Jr., who was actually the father of Kate Batts. This meant the two women were cousins. If this is true, could it be possible that the two women were working together to concoct the haunting in order to cover up John's murder? One thing that comes through in pretty much every retelling of the story is that John Bell was not a nice man. It's possible his wife was looking for a way to get away with poisoning him. Perhaps the two women came up with a plan to fake a haunting in order to place the blame for John's death on a ghost. The family connection between the two women might also explain why the spirit acted kindly toward Lucy. But at the same time, it doesn't explain why the spirit would remain so abusive toward Lucy's own children. Even today, you'll find people who insist the story of the Bell Witch is entirely true. This includes members of the modern-day Bell family who just might still be haunted to this day. Bob Bell, who is still alive, tells the story of how one day his grandmother called Bob's father in terror, begging him to come over and look for an intruder in her home. When Bob's father got there, he couldn't find any intruders. But what he did discover was that someone had broken open the family's locked china cabinet and tossed all the dishes on the floor. Strangely, though, not a single dish was broken. One other legend about the Bell Witch that's worth telling is about a particular cave that is on the land that once belonged to John Bell. Although most versions of the story of the Bell Witch begin with John's strange encounter with an unusual animal on the farm. There are those who say it actually all started in 1817 when young Betsy Bell and some of her friends visited the cave. The reason for this visit are unclear, but caves are dark and mysterious, and children are children. So we can pretty much guess they were looking to have some fun and explore. But while they were in there, one of the boys managed to get himself stuck in a crevice. The others tried pulling on him, but the boy was good and stuck. At first, the children thought they might have to leave him there to go get help, when suddenly an otherworldly voice spoke and said, I'll get him out. Then a pair of invisible hands yanked the boy free. Some believers in the story of the Bell Witch think this is the real moment when the spirit entered the picture. That cave really exists, and is now on the U.S. National Register of Historic Places. The land it's on is currently owned by a man named Bill Eden, and during the summer and all the way into October, you can take a guided tour through it yourself. According to Eden, though, it was during one of these tours when something strange happened. Bill said that one day he was leading a group of about a dozen tourists down the Twisting Trail to the cave's entrance. When one member of the group abruptly collapsed in the middle of the trail and said she couldn't get back up. When the others asked why she had fallen, the woman said she hadn't fallen. Something pushed her down. Something very strong and very heavy. And it wouldn't let her get back up. It took several of the people on the tour to hoist her back to her feet again. Now, you could easily explain this incident away to a combination of exhaustion and imagination run wild, but Bill thinks there's more to it. You see, Bill claims to have once been down in the cave by himself when he said he began hearing footsteps. He looked around to see who else was there and was startled to see the figure of a person standing a few yards away. Standing isn't exactly the right word either, because there were two things Bill noticed immediately about this figure before him. One, the figure was entirely milky white. Although he couldn't see through it, it still clearly wasn't anything natural. That's because this figure wasn't actually standing either. The figure was floating several inches above the cave floor. Then just as suddenly as it appeared, the pale figure vanished before Bill's eyes. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Connie and Min for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another way you can help show your support for the show is to subscribe and give us a 5-star rating and review wherever you get your podcast. Each one of your ratings and reviews really helps us out by spreading the good word about the show and growing our family of listeners just like you. I also want to direct you over to my new YouTube channel, Dark Chronicles, where I've been posting all sorts of short-form videos related to the same topics you've come to enjoy here. I've also posted some similar videos over on TikTok and Instagram as well. Besides, so you can find us on Facebook and, well, whatever the heck Twitter is called this week. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Feel free to reach out in any of those places or even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening. And if you're hearing this around the time it's released, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy Hanukkah, or however you choose to celebrate. Thank you. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story